This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the MathEd Podcast. My name is Chuck Munter, an assistant professor of mathematics education at the University of Missouri. In this episode, we present the fourth edition of our digest format, in which we summarize several recent research studies rather than providing an in-depth interview focused on just one. To help accomplish this goal, we extended an invitation to all listeners to become contributors who submit brief summaries and interpretations of recent works that they are interested in. Here, we offer four such entries. First, Marty Fong will provide a summary of Ariel Lindorf and Pam Sammons' article in the June issue of ZDM describing their mixed methods approach to observing and analyzing mathematics lessons in a third grade classroom. Next, Sam Otten will describe a recent article in the journal Digital Experiences in Mathematics Education. It was authored by Aaron Trockey and Karen Hollibrands and presents a framework for assessing dynamic geometry task quality. We then turn to two segments that attend to broader aspects of the field. Both come from the July issue of JRME. In the first, I will summarize an analysis by Matthew Inglis and Colin Foster in which they employed topic modeling to identify trends over time across all of the nearly 4,000 entries in JRME and educational studies in mathematics since the journal's inceptions. The episode then concludes with Kara Haynes reading excerpts of Jeremy Kilpatrick's review of the new Compendium for Research in Mathematics Education. We hope you enjoy this fourth Digest episode, and as always, welcome suggestions and contributions from listeners. Hi, my name is Marty Fong, a math teacher in Northern California, and I'm summarizing Ariel Lindorf and Pam Salmon's research paper, Going Beyond Structured Observations looking at classroom practice through a mixed method lens from the ZDM Mathematics Education Research Journal. In this study, Lindorf and Sammons observed three videotaped lessons from each of three third grade math classrooms with the focus of understanding the benefits and limitations of using two different quantitative evaluation tools and qualitative field notes to inform their observations a mixed-method approach. The first quantitative evaluation method used in the study was the Mathematics Enhancement Classroom Observation Recording System, referred to in the rest of the summary by its acronym, MCORS. And the second quantitative evaluation method was the Quality of Teaching Lesson Observation Form, referred to in the rest of the summary simply as QOT. Both of these quantitative methods The MCORS and the QOT instruments list a number of categorized items related to teaching and learning that the observer then assigns numerical values to based on their classroom observations. Some categories or domains, for example, are maintains appropriate classroom behavior, demonstrates a variety of teaching methods, establishes a positive classroom climate, clear objectives, activating pupils, and adaptation of teaching. The qualitative field notes focused on descriptions of the physical environment, tasks and activities, student and teacher behaviors, and classroom interactions with quotes to capture specific interactions and teacher feedback. In the author's analysis, 
all three observation methods in some categories converge with each other and in other categories diverge from each other. For example, both of the quantitative tools agreed that the first two teachers were relatively weak in classroom climate and behavior management and that the third teacher was stronger in these areas and the qualitative field notes further supported and affirmed these conclusions about behavior management with the three teachers. At the same time, McCores indicated that all three teachers were strong for focuses and maintained attention on the lesson, while QOT indicated that all three teachers have more weaknesses than strengths for activating pupils, the roughly parallel QOT category. The qualitative field notes then showed discrepancies among the teachers in this area of student attention or engagement, indicating that some students at various times throughout the lessons were engaged, just according to standards different than those measured numerically on the QOT tool. Also, beyond converging or diverging from the two quantitative observation methods, the qualitative field notes at times extended and or elaborated on the feedback from the quantitative measures, providing new, additional dimensions of consideration that the frameworks of the quantitative methods limited them from exploring. For example, McCores and QOT both indicate the frequency of teacher feedback, but neither specify if that feedback is directed to groups, to individuals, or to the whole class, whereas the qualitative field notes show that the intended audience of the majority of teacher feedback, group, individual, or whole class, varied among the three teachers. In the final analysis, the authors conclude that the two quantitative measures used in tandem provide a distillation of strengths and weaknesses, while the qualitative field notes provide rich evidence of teacher behaviors, classroom climate, and lesson flow. Altogether, the combination of multiple instruments capitalizes on the strengths of each while minimizing the weaknesses of each to provide a more accurate, informative, and complete analysis of teaching and learning in classroom observations. I'm Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and I'm going to summarize an article by Aaron Trockey and Karen Hollibrands that was recently published online in the journal Digital Experiences in Mathematics Education. Their article is titled, The Development of a Framework for Assessing Dynamic Geometry Task Quality. So this article focuses on dynamic geometry software, which has now been around for several decades, but with the continuing rise in smartphones, tablets, and other devices in schools, students and teachers now have more access than ever to dynamic geometry software, such as GeoGebra, Geometer Sketchpad, and others. Because it has been around for decades, that also means we have a substantial literature base to this point. Trocky and Hollibrands do a nice job of synthesizing the state of research, and they point out that much of the work, and rightly so, has been about the kinds of actions and thought processes that students engage in as they work with dynamic geometry software. And there's also been research about how teachers facilitate lessons that involve dynamic geometry software. The authors then shift toward their main objective, which is to think about the task and how it plays a role as a foundation for both student thinking and lesson enactment. They present a framework for assessing the quality of tasks that are incorporating dynamic geometry tools. And an important question right away is, quality in what sense? 
Trocki and Hollebrands decided to focus on quality with respect to a the nature of reasoning afforded by the task, and for this they drew on ample research related to conjecturing, explaining, and proving, and b the extent of the technological action required. They also connected to theoretical ideas of semiotic mediation from Vygotsky. The details of how they developed the framework are best found in the article itself, but in short, they solicited from 24 teachers tasks that involved dynamic geometry tools. Then they worked to parse quality in meaningful and reliable ways along those two dimensions, the reasoning or mathematical depth entailed, and the technological action entailed. They worked not only from the teacher-generated tasks, but also drew upon past work such as Sinclair's research in 2003, where she gave recommendations about how to set up good dynamic geometry situations. For example, Sinclair said, make sure the geometric sketch draws attention to the feature intended to be learned. Allow for experimentation and alternate paths, but don't make it so unstructured as to lead to frustration. Trocky and Hollebrands also took to heart Hoyle's and Jones's warning that we must avoid having the majority of students be mere example producers or pattern spotters. The goal is for most or all of the students to be meaningfully engaged with relationships and properties and explanations. So the framework itself is called the Dynamic Geometry Task Analysis Framework, and it has the two major components already mentioned, allowance for mathematical depth and types of technological action. Both components are broken down into seven levels. There's a not applicable level where there's no focus on mathematics or there is no drawing, measurement, or anything technological expected from the student. And then there are six more levels of quality in each component. Under mathematical depth, zero would be a sketch that does not have mathematical fidelity itself. One would be that there is student recall of a math fact, rule, formula, or definition. Two would be the student has to report information from the sketch. Three would be the student has to consider mathematical concepts, processes, or relationships in the sketch. Four would require the student to explain the mathematical concepts, processes, or relationships. And then five would be that the student has to go beyond the current construction and they generalize mathematical concepts, processes, or relationships. Uh, under types of technological action, the lowest would be um, just drawing within the current sketch, then next would be measuring within the sketch, then constructing within the current sketch, then there would be dragging or using some dynamic aspect of the sketch, and then nearing the top here we would have manipulation of the sketch that allows for the recognition of some emergent invariance, and then the highest level for technological action would be a requirement to manipulate the sketch and there might be a surprise that arises or there might be some exploration and rethinking based on extreme cases. So that's a quick rundown of the framework and after developing the framework the authors took it one step further by actually collecting student data from students who worked on tasks at the various quality levels. This allowed them to check whether the level distinctions that they thought were important actually played out in terms of differences in the student's work and the student's experience with the tasks. In short, what they found was that the student data did provide evidence for the validity of the framework. But of course, I refer you to the article itself for details. And the authors do give the caveat that, of course, task quality does not determine the quality of students' experiences with the task, but the levels do seem to be worth distinguishing and considering. 
In conclusion, we can think about some of the implications and uses for this framework. Its development came out of a professional development project with teachers, and that could be one use for it, PD, and supporting teachers in thinking about and recognizing important differences in task quality related to dynamic geometry. It might also be useful just directly for teachers, not through the filter of formal PD. If teachers have access to this framework, that might help them in finding, creating, or modifying tasks in geometry. Another potential avenue of use is for curriculum developers. As they are designing tasks, either for textbooks or for lesson databases associated with particular geometry software, they can now think about which levels of the framework they're hitting and which levels they wish to hit. With regard to research, it will now be interesting to see how this task quality framework will connect with other research on teaching or learners' thoughts and interactions around dynamic geometry software tasks. The field could use this framework as a consistent way to talk about the tasks that are involved in a variety of dynamic geometry studies, and we could continue to build out our understanding of how these tools relate to thinking and learning. Hello, this is Chuck Munter again. Earlier this summer, I was in London to attend the biannual International Conference of the Learning Sciences. During dinner one evening with old friends and new acquaintances, the conversation turned briefly to discussing how a current doctoral student at the table might decide where to send a new manuscript. This is a conversation I've heard many times before. In this case, we were considering three journals often associated with the learning sciences, Journal of the Learning Sciences, Cognition and Instruction, and Mind, Culture, and Activity. But the conversation extends to all of mathematics education's journals, too, and, I'm guessing, those of any discipline or field of research. What is the flavor of one journal compared to another? What have they been publishing lately? Has it changed in recent years? In last month's issue of Journal for Research in Mathematics Education, two scholars from the middle of England report on an analysis of theirs that approach such questions systematically and exhaustively. The authors are Matthew Inglis of Lockborough University and Colin Foster of the University of Leicester. Their interest was broad, namely the development of the field over the last five decades. As a representation of that development, they focused on two of the field's oldest, most respected journals, the one in which their report appeared, JRME, which began in 1970, and Educational Studies in Mathematics, which began in 1968. Although their attention was limited to just two journals, their analysis included every published work in those outlets since their inception, a combined total of nearly 4,000 entries. They did not, however, read all of those published works. Employing the method of topic modeling, they stripped out all of the common words like a, and, the, is, etc., and entered PDFs into a program called Mallet, to count frequencies of words and identify distinct groups of papers based on their frequencies of topic-specific words. This is almost certainly oversimplifying it, but I came to think of it as a clustered word cloud, that thing where the size of each word in the word collage is determined by its frequency. They excluded journal administration entries, like announcements of special issues or lists of editorial board members, and also did not include the non-English articles that Ed Studies has published. In the end, their results included 28 topics, including addition and subtraction, constructivism, curriculum, equity, 
experimental designs, gender, problem solving, proof and argumentation, semiotics and embodied cognition, sociocultural theory, statistics and probability, teachers' knowledge and beliefs, and 16 other topics. In their article, they include the one paper with the highest proportion of words from the topic, but also include a link to a spreadsheet that provides the top 10 for each one. For example, as the authors note, seven of the 10 papers most associated with constructivism were authored by Les Steffi or his advisee, Paul Cobb, mostly in the early 90s. I was curious about the other three, and found that one of them was a review of von Glasersfeld's 1995 book, another was Steve Lerman's 1996 challenge to radical constructivism, and the last was a 2004 paper by Marty Simon and colleagues. Inglis and Foster's results pointed to a number of interesting changes over time and differences between the two journals. With respect to domain content, they found that among the topics that have seen the most increase in attention since the journal's starts have been school algebra, proof and argumentation, and teacher knowledge and beliefs. Curriculum, and especially reform curriculum, has also been on the rise, but only in JRME. Euclidean geometry was well represented in Ed's studies in the 70s, but has dropped off in both journals since then. Problem solving peaked in the 80s, as did gender. Attention to equity has remained fairly flat over the years. So too has the topic of statistics and probability. A second set of results, and the one that was most interesting to me, I think, concerned changes over time in theoretical perspectives. But I should back up a little before describing that. The authors considered a number of arguments from philosophy of science and settled on Lakatos's idea of a research program. As Inglis and Foster summarize, a research program is a collection of theories that share a hard core, a set of fundamental assumptions and beliefs held by those working within the program, and a heuristic, a common set of methods and techniques that researchers use to make progress within the program. Lakatosh also described how research programs deal with anomalies, which is often by employing a protective belt, which the present authors describe as a, quote, collection of auxiliary hypotheses that supplement the hardcore and that can be used to prevent it from being falsified. For example, constructivism was a dominant research program for many years in mathematics education. A key element in its heuristic was the clinical interview, and, as Lerman might have argued had he framed it in these terms, social constructivism emerged as a rescue hypothesis that helped to form constructivism's protective belt. The authors identified eight hardcore and heuristic topics in the two journals. Of particular interest to them was whether the field has maintained the social turn that Lerman, writing in 2000, suggested it had made. The results of Inglis and Foster's topic modeling analysis suggest that it has, as so far this century, the two journals have seen a consistent decline in the use of constructivism and a consistent increase in the use of sociocultural theory, although the latter has been truer in Ed's studies than in JRME. Other topics that the authors identified as having been on the rise, although again primarily in Ed's studies, include semiotics, embodied cognition, and didactical theories, all of which led them to conclude that the field is currently experiencing a period of theoretical diversity. The opposite was true for research employing experimental designs. Although such work was more prominent in JRME, collectively both journals saw a steep decline beginning in the 1970s, so much so that the authors described it as an experimental cliff. The authors credited efforts in the late 70s calling for methodological diversification, and a 1979 position statement by Frank Lester and Donald Kerr in particular as having had quite an impact but they do not claim that the experimental program degenerated. Rather, they suggest that it migrated. 
A final analysis of theirs shows that while the presence of experimental designs has declined in JRME and ed studies, it has been on the rise in reports of mathematics studies in the psychology category of Scopus journals. This is to say that while math education researchers do not, on the whole, conduct many randomized controlled trials these days, our colleagues who study mathematical thinking and learning in educational and cognitive psychology do. Inglis and Foster argued that such division in our field's respective research programs has consequences. It means we may be missing out on anomalies that might arise and challenge dominant theoretical perspectives within our field, and thus help the field both maintain theoretical diversity and make progress. The authors bring up the example of the substantial evidence base for the effectiveness of direct or explicit instruction. Math education researchers can dismiss such research as outdated or epistemologically suspect, but might we gain more by addressing it more directly as, say, challenges to the sociocultural theory or embodied cognition research programs? Speaking of migration, as I read this article, I wondered about the considerable number of journals in math ed that have come along since the birth of JRME and ed studies, and how the proportions of topics in them might differ. For example, among the 28 topics included in the author's analysis were equity, gender, and multilingual learners, but race, ethnomathematics, and critical studies were not. Might those and other topics show up in a similar analysis of other journals in our field? Also absent from Inglis and Foster's discussion were journal editors. What impact did their interests and visions for the field have on what made it to print during their tenures? What if it was possible to run not only the published papers through the topic modeling algorithms, but also all of the rejected manuscripts? Would the results be similar, or might they reveal periods during which editor bias was stronger? periods that might have contributed to all those other journals springing up. Despite such lingering questions, I enjoyed reading this novel article by Inglis and Foster. I don't remember which of the learning sciences journals we landed on at that pub in London, but if the same question arises about whether to submit to JRME or Educational Studies in Mathematics, my advice will now be a little more informed. This is Kara Haynes from the University of Missouri, where I am currently a student in the Math Ed PhD program. Last fall, NCTM published its third comprehensive survey of research in the field, the Compendium for Research in Mathematics Education. In last month's issue of Journal for Research in Mathematics Education, Jeremy Kilpatrick provided a review of the compendium entitled, Where Are We? The Third Take. We thought some listeners might appreciate learning a little about the compendium and hearing what Dr. Kilpatrick had to say. So for this entry, I will be reading excerpts from his review. From the beginning, Kilpatrick writes, A quarter century ago, the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics published the first handbook of research on mathematics teaching and learning. Fifteen years later, they published a second handbook of research on mathematics teaching and learning. Now, in anticipation of its centenary in 2020, NCTM has published the Compendium for Research in Mathematics Education. The replacement of Handbook of by Compendium 4 in the title, though originating as an issue associated with copyright permission, also represents a kind of progress. The word handbook was originally used to mean something like small, easily consulted pocket reference, which certainly did not apply to the first two publications. 
In his preface, Kai quotes the dictionary definition of compendium as a collection of concise but detailed information about a particular subject that has been systematically gathered, and he emphasizes that the three components of concise, detailed, and systematically gathered characterize the compendium at hand. Perhaps even more significant is the change from of to for. That change was made, according to Kai, to signal a shift from a static, backward-looking collection of observations about research in our field to a resource that could be used to move that research forward. To service that shift, the authors of all the compendium chapters were asked to speculate on future directions for research in light of the research they were reviewing. Like the first two handbooks, the compendium is divided into major sections, in this case five. Certain patterns are evident across the three reference books. First sections address matters of general interest, such as the nature of research in our field and the roles of theory, method, and practice. Middle sections consider matters of teaching and learning mathematics, and final sections look to the future, discussing trends and directions. Most compendium chapters are structured into three parts, summarizations of early work on the topic, reviews of research conducted over the past decade, and conjectures regarding future research on the topic. Kilpatrick then discusses each of the five sections, highlighting particular chapters. Skipping to the concluding section, entitled Tripling and Triangulating, Kilpatrick writes, The compendium is both a profound updating of the two handbooks and a lucid demonstration of how the field has grown and diversified since the second handbook appeared. In general, research in our field has continued to shift its focus from learning by individuals to learning by groups, to teaching, and ultimately to professional development. It is also being encouraged to move outside the boundaries of K-12 education. Over the past decade, some researchers in mathematics education have burrowed into aspects of this mathematics being taught and learned, the learners, the teachers, or the contexts. Others have ventured into unconventional realms of educational studies. Both groups have produced studies that elaborate established bodies of work. The compendium reflects the output of those efforts, but almost every author team acknowledges that limited space meant that much research literature had to be ignored. In his review of the first handbook, Bowersfeld termed it a very North American book, at least in large part, not only because of the composition of the author teams, but also because of the nearly total neglect of any kind of non-English literature. Even though it has members from many countries, NCTM is a North American organization, and English is its dominant language for reporting educational research. Unless studies conducted outside English-speaking countries have been reported in English, they are unlikely to have been considered for the compendium. Although several chapters have one or two references in Russian, French, or German, most references are in English but entire realms of mathematics education research reports in those languages, not to mention in Spanish, Italian, Greek, Chinese, Japanese, and other languages, are missing from the compendium. The compendium is the first of the NCTM research reference books to have an editor born and educated outside of the United States. Like the editors before him, Kai made a special effort to include authors from countries other than the United States. However, even though his effort was successful, Less than a quarter of the compendium's authors fit that category, in part because the number of authors per chapter is greater than it was for the first two handbooks. Roughly one-third of those authors are just starting in the field, a propitious sign. 
It is easy to forget or overlook how young the enterprise of research in mathematics education is and how rocky its short history has sometimes been. Only a half century ago, the NCTM board questioned whether to establish JRME, worrying, among other concerns, that there was not enough quality research with which to fill such a journal. Today, JRME flourishes, and NCTM publishes a host of other research publications. As NCTM's centenary comes into view, the compendium is a masterful demonstration of how far our research has come and how that research has transformed the field of mathematics education. And that concludes Kilpatrick's review. With a $375 price tag, it's unlikely that I will be acquiring my own personal copy on a grad student stipend. But um, as I head into my dissertation, I certainly appreciate the work of all the contributing authors to pull together an updated summary of the field's research. And I would appreciate it if my professors would pony up for an office copy. Uh, so this has been an episode of the Math Ed Podcast. This is Kara Haynes. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.